You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. We're changing it up a bit for the summer and welcoming several guest hosts. This is the Summer Series, Episode 1, and I am your guest host, Vesper Stamper. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to let you know about several opportunities to participate with the Makers and Mystics Creative Collective. In the show notes of this episode, you'll find a link to learn more about our creative coaching opportunities and how to become a monthly patron of the podcast. Makers and Mystics is committed to be an anchor and a resource of connectivity for those artists and creatives who follow our work. So be sure to sign up for our monthly newsletter at makersandmystics.com to stay informed about events happening in our community, including our June book club and July art workshop focusing on the art of Kintsugi. Also be on the lookout for details about this year's annual Bright Wings Poetry Contest taking place in July. David Chang is a renowned artist who has pursued the art of Western calligraphy for the past 20 years. His masterful study of calligraphy is driven by a passion for bringing the essence of a word or message to life. Chang's calligraphic mark, vacillating between traditional scripts and contemporary abstraction, issues statements of personal, cultural, and spiritual awareness while retaining a formal beauty full of urgency and redemption. David's work is incredibly special, incorporating elements of Asian calligraphic tradition as well as performance art and abstract painting. He makes his mark on cinema screens and in humble local churches, truly embodying the ethos of the artist as both witness and servant. This is my interview with calligrapher David Chang. David Chang, thank you for being with me on the Makers and Mystics podcast. Yeah, Glad to have you. Thanks for inviting me to this. So I thought that, you know, like any great interview of an artist, we would start with your childhood. So where did you grow up? What kind of kid were you? And I think what we all really want to know is, did you have immaculate penmanship as a kid? (laughs) (laughs) I grew up in Korea, lived in Chicago when I was three. I grew up in the Chicago area, most of my growing up in the, the suburbs there, like the West suburbs. I always had a fascination with penmanship. I remember just being fascinated with letter forms, filling my pages with copying, even like the Korean newspaper to the Chicago Tribune or just any kind of newspaper. I would just try to copy, for some reason, just the letter forms. I just was really interested maybe like in the basic structure and architecture of letters. And so that was just something early on. I just had a kind of interest in But then that kind of got lost as I continued through school. Art wasn't something that was really um, thought of as like a valid career or anything. So it fell by the wayside. And it was something that I kind of discovered much later in my life. Did you take art classes in school? And did Um, you like them? No, I didn't take any art classes. It was just mostly like these basic you know, just math, science, things like that. But in the background, I guess inside, I always wished I could have been doing something more creative, but it just seemed like something that was just not uh, realistic. For me, it was all about how can I make a stable living doing something, you know? So it was either like doctor, lawyer, or, you know, that type of route. And it wasn't until... I got really sick actually post-college that it really gave me time to rethink. I got to do something more passionate with my life. And that's when I went to art school. Yeah. Yeah. Let's come back to that in one second. I want to ask you 
Where did you think your career was heading as a young man? Yeah, that's the thing. I just thought I, I would just follow something. As long as I did well in school, I thought the career would just kind of naturally, I, I just sort of gravitate towards something. I actually applied for and got in for engineering, but quickly realized I, I wasn't meant to go that path. I went into the School of Communications, and to me, it seemed like the best kind of balance that's creative and also that could make some money. So it was more towards marketing or advertising, that type of thing. Right. And so you mentioned that you got sick after college. Yeah. What was that about? I just had this overwhelming just burden, still not knowing like what I wanted to do for one thing. And I just knew like whatever job I was doing now, that just, I, I was not happy. I think at the time I was working for some import export company. Yeah. Even though it was paying decent, I was very uh, depressed. And what happened was I, I developed something called ulcerative colitis. And that really forced me to just stay at home and really think about, you know, my life and what was important. Ultimately, I ended up getting a surgery and I had a lot of time to even think more about what to do. And I, after the surgery, I just promised God, like, if you get me out of this, I'm just going to go dive headfirst into just something that I want to do, not something that's expected of me. Uh, that's when I made the leap and went to this school called uh, Creative Circus. It's a small like advertising school in uh, Atlanta. And that's where I kind of found my passion for calligraphy actually was through this uh, type design class. I really credit my mentor a lot, Rob Lawton. He saw that I had like just a natural desire to learn calligraphy. And he just really knew how to encourage me in the right way. I think what it was is I rediscovered my love for ladder forms again through calligraphy. And so things just started opening up again. My passion, my whole world for, I guess, finding my voice in the arts, you know? Yeah, that's incredible. What a circuitous route. I know for a lot of us, that kind of crisis point, whether it's you know, an illness for me, an accident, you know, really forces the issue of, I suppose, your mortality yeah, and the, the fact that you just have this one life to live, right? Mm -hmm. Really forces that. So I'd like to know more about this beginning in calligraphy. When I took a type design class in college, handwriting did not even enter into it. It was really just, you know, learning the difference between Helvetica and, you know, Garamond and things, you know, yeah, um, yeah, right. and having to kind of reproduce those letter forms by hand and then design a poster, let's say. But how did calligraphy enter in to that training? Well, it was just one of the many things that they were teaching. I remember we had to do a lot of tracing for type. I, I actually love typography as well. A lot of just going through the different classic sans serif and serif fonts, but I just kept sticking with calligraphy because that was the first time being exposed to just seeing a pen, like a dip pen, and seeing that you can actually make these beautiful lines and letter forms just by this simple tool. And something about the art of that really, it was one of those moments where I felt like if I could just learn how to do that, I would be happy that it was that simple. And that was it. I just spent so much time just trying to get familiar with that tool and the, and the pen. Again, my mentor, he just 
exposed me to all kind of like the contemporary great calligraphers of the day. And luckily enough, one of the best calligraphers in the world happened to reside in, I think, Winston-Salem. And he was giving workshops through this uh, thing called Cheerio. And I think they still do give workshops. So that's where I got really exposed to the masters of calligraphy. Because mm. at Cheerio, they give this platform to all the kind of like the top calligraphers. So just being exposed to these greats really helped kind of sink in more of like the motivation to learn and just really get exposed to the different styles and the different traditions of calligraphy. Right. So you work in a Western style or you're trained in yeah. a Western style calligraphy, but your technique is very reminiscent of Chinese calligraphy or, yeah. or Japanese right. scrolls, you know, used in tea ceremony, for example. I'm thinking in particular of this beautiful piece you did for your 2013 exhibit renewal, which the piece is the English word renewal, but it's written vertically in a way that changes the expression of it completely. And I'm only moderately aware of some of the complex historical interplay between Korean, Japanese, and Chinese yeah. culture. But again, I'm only beginning to learn that. Can you tell me about the role of your Korean heritage mm -hmm. and these other expressions of calligraphy and how that intersects with the Western tradition that you're working in? Yeah, absolutely. So it's all being led by just an innate interest and just speaking like what's beautiful. And after I got familiar with all these different Western styles, I kept going deeper and deeper and studying kind of the source of Chinese calligraphy and just kind of seeing the beauty, but also more importantly, the, the philosophy of how the Chinese calligraphers would approach their writing. And I started adopting a lot of their methodology for example, just uh, viewing calligraphy as more of like a performance and how like a musician, you're at home just practicing and practicing and they'd have gatherings where they'd actually perform in the Song Dynasty. These the group called the Literati would gather together. It's almost like cultural gatherings where they would perform their poems and calligraphy. A lot of those documents became historical, documenting just the importance of uh, that moment, what they're writing, who they're writing in front of, uh, all those factors played into that. I would say more the expressionist or the expression or the expressionist line of calligraphy came from me adopting more of their approaches to it. So some of your most impactful work, and mm -hmm. I don't know if you're most well known for this, but it, it's very impactful to me, is on large scrolls so it's, it's again touching back on those gatherings in the song dynasty about creating large or they weren't large they were just you know scroll works that they uh write for each other they're beautiful i started thinking how can i incorporate what i'm doing into a performance aspect like what they did creating more site-specific works that that activate the space as well and the people around it and so I, I started working on these large, just rolls of paper. I remember for one of the performances, I, for the text, I would just go around the block, just recording random conversations to just uh, random people saying, just capturing different words and just collecting them all together. And then using that as kind of like my source text for that space. But 
I would say the main body of the scroll works are, I started sourcing more like sacred texts from the Bible and using those to kind of help memorialize that space. For example, I'm having a, a show up at Hope Church in June, and I'll be taking one of their kind of founding verses and creating kind of a large scroll piece at the site. So that helps bring the vision, the words that have kind of guided this church. That's an example of taking like a, a mission statement type verse and memorializing it in, in the space. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of one of these pieces that you did, uh, a Rilke poem. That, yeah. I mean, the, the scroll must have been 30 feet long or something like that. I mean, you know, and then how you took that scroll and bunched it up and displayed it in this way that was bunched up and kind of crumpled, but also looked like it could kind of blow away in the wind or take off. So I'm interested in this format of the scroll because we don't work with scrolls now because the the codex book, you know, became the dominant That's right, way, yeah. way of documenting and, and communication, right? So the, for those that don't know, a codex book is you know, a a cut and folded pile of paper that is then sewn together or glued together, right? So, but obviously in the context of large ancient scrolls, you know, like say the Torah, they're typically horizontal, right? And so Mm -hmm. you would only display or read a certain portion of it at a time. You know, it's not like the whole entire scroll was unfurled at all times for all to see. It was like you would have ways of finding your way through the scroll to find that passage of text, let's say. And so I'm interested in more about how you explore the format of the scroll in terms of verticality as opposed to horizontal, you know. Yeah. Again, that was trying to introduce and tie in Western calligraphy with the East and just trying to introduce the Eastern orientation of how Asians view or read their calligraphy and experience it in a more vertical kind of orientation. I guess more kind of like that cascading effect of that scroll for that one exhibition. That's when we were inspired to just create something that felt like how how could we activate the scroll even more into more of a contemporary context of just something that looks like it's almost coming down from the heavens kind of thing. Mm. or being inspired by the heavens. Yeah, uh, when you talk about the cascade of the text and how that one piece, the way that it's crumpled, it it almost feels like it could be a waterfall, you know, the the foam at the bottom of a waterfall. Yeah, that's funny. I haven't thought about that piece in a while. Looking back, that piece was actually kind of prophetic, you know. After a couple of years, I actually started working for um, this art gallery, art gallery slash event space called Waterfall Gallery. So... Yeah, it's funny. That time at Waterfall was very uh, formative, I say. That was like another formative time, but actually more for my uh, spiritual formation than art. Yeah, I, I know that Mako Fujimura exhibits there. Is that right? Yeah. Mako was um, one of the people that helped shake me out of the, I guess, context of seeing my work as design and starting to think of it as art. That word uh, that he used uh, in this talk he gave, uh, creative capital, and how important it was for creatives to start investing in themselves 
it really got me thinking about my work in that kind of context as a creative capital. And that's when I started making intentionally artwork in a, or calligraphy in a more artwork context format. Yeah, I, I want to talk about that shift in a moment. I wanted to ask you, you mentioned that that Rilke piece had an element of prophecy in it for you. And I know that your spiritual life is a crucial component of your work. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about your spiritual background. I believe your father is a pastor in New York City. Mm -hmm. He's a retired Methodist pastor. And for the longest time, I think that was one of the things in the back of my mind was that I come from a long line of pastors and I never felt the calling to go into the ministry. And I thought the calling would come, but it just never came. But the seeds of evangelizing or just kind of being able to be a proponent of the gospel really has always been there. It's still there in my heart. So I think that serves as kind of the foundation for my art making process. Even though I'm doing all this calligraphy art, the heart of it is there's a deeper message that's always in the art process. Was that always true of your artwork when you began? Let's put the communication arts part of it aside, you know, the advertising and marketing training. But when you fell in love with calligraphy, was Christianity always part of that? Was there yeah. a desire to communicate that through, yeah, through the that, word? Yeah, there was. And I think that's why the calligraphy seemed like such a natural fit as well, because it's, you know, tie in with the manuscript tradition. And I just thought it, it would just be a beautiful way to simply write verses or scripture. At least to me, you know, it's just something that I, I would appreciate. And then I think from there, the language of the aesthetic just kept growing and growing, where it wasn't just about the words anymore, but it was about a composition or after that, or just creating something that's artwork. And now it's become more of something that's a language of abstraction. So how did your ministry family, you know, especially your pastor father and your, <laughs> your lineage of pastors, how did they respond when you decided to pursue art? as a vocation? I think there was a lot of hesitancy because I don't think they understood that you could make a living doing this. Because in the bottom, it's, it's a very pragmatic decision. Like, can you support yourself and support your family doing this? What they realize is that there's a whole different world that generation hasn't been exposed to. Even with social media, you know, my dad is seeing like how many more opportunities we have now, you know, to really create something meaningful and also be able to make a living out of it. I think the real confirming thing was seeing my work on a movie project. And that's when he realized, like, okay, maybe my son can make a living out of this. Yeah, you're, I think you're talking about the Aronofsky film Mother. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was a whole nother godsend. We had a left field. You know, I, I guess that's just a testament to how God moves in my life, you know, just through these little almost confirming signposts along the way. Right. As long as you're walking in the authenticity of who you are and, Absolutely. you know, that's right. 
it's Irenaeus that said the glory of God is man fully alive, right? And I, I think of that, you know, the things that make us come alive the most as artists and as people, if we live into that and we follow that, that life-giving path as we're walking with him, you know, things do fall into place. It's kind of funny how they I do totally fall into place. That. Yeah, yeah. I, I totally believe that. And time and time again, that's how he's just showed me just keep following me and pursuing me with everything you have and honoring me with your gifts. He'll orchestrate things around your life to really support that. Let's go back to your origins with the, with the calligraphy. And I, I know you began with pretty straight ahead calligraphy when you started. So, but over time, your work has really become incredibly loose. And I know you still do commercial work with more recognizable text, like the title for the film Mother, and more recently for the hotel chain, The Standard. Is that right? Yeah, The Standard was just the place where I was hired to perform one of the scroll pieces through an organization called Gen Next. I realized there's a balance between getting your commercial work so you can devote more time to your fine art or your illustrative work. So you have your more straight ahead, recognizable text. So you've also deconstructed, though, the written word into these incredibly abstracted forms where the text is obscured and even works that abandon text completely just for the sake of mark making. Mm -hmm. And I can think of several artists who began similarly like by exploring letter forms in their work and subsequently deconstructed them. I'm thinking of the author, Michelle Zackheim, who went in the reverse of that actually. So she began as a painter and she worked through letter forms in her work. And then she eventually abandoned art altogether and became an author. Wow. And there's elements even in my own trajectory of the back and forth between words and image. I just want to know how this process occurred with you. Sure. In kind of deconstruct, love- you know, falling in love with letter form and then deconstructing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's always been this expression of my faith. And so as I've gone deeper into my faith, there are things that, for example, you know, just encountering the spirit and how the spirit moves in my life. There are things that I know where the spirit's moving, but it's um, trying to capture it's the feeling of it where there are no words and somehow the language of abstraction captures that mood or feeling really well. I think my friend said it the best. He says, my work reminds him when the word meets the world, that space where the word of God meets the messiness of humanity, but he meets us in that place of tension. I think for me, I love kind of the expressive line and being able to capture or express my faith simply just by drawing one stroke. Everything is there, the tension of the line, but also the beauty and the fluidity. But then there's kind of like this chatter going on as well. As I'm going deeper and deeper in my faith, I see that there's a language that I'm pursuing that's more about, you know, just a feeling, capturing what that feeling is. Yeah, I love what you said that where the word meets the world and that sort of messy space and and how those things blur into each other. I know you and I share a real passion for the word of God and we exalt that and we hold that up as very high, you know, 
and it informs everything that we do and how we live and how we work. And you spoke earlier about your desire for, or your being drawn toward evangelism, which I share, but I think in our practical intersections with the world as artists, let's say that expression looks different than somebody might typically think of evangelism as, you know, somebody standing on a soapbox on the corner and shouting and, you know, a lot of proclamation and projection, right? But not a lot of maybe listening or contemplation or things like that. I wonder if you could just talk about what happens to you when you're creating your work and you're in that solitary space? Is there a self-forgetting? Are you meditating on certain concrete things in terms of the word? What does that interplay look like for you? And it's kind of a question in a way that can't be answered, but (laughs) I think, you know, those of us who do feel that kind of communion when we're working, I wonder if you could just give some language to that. Yeah, I think that creative process is, I'm sure it's different for everyone. I would say the approach to the art making, it's getting into that right state, that kind of prayerful state of gratitude and just being in the flow and inviting the spirit into my heart and into the space. That all takes before the art making. And then when I'm reading a something or taking in a verse, I feel like I'm more in tune with kind of like what the heart of what that verse is trying to say. In the actual art making process, it's kind of like a surfer, you know, when a surfer is kind of waiting for that right wave to come in. And then when you catch that wave, and now you're just learning to surf what that momentum is. And so when I'm art making, there's a certain spiritual momentum that I'm part of, and I'm just trying to bring expression to that. You know, over the years, I've gotten familiar with different techniques and the tools. And so I'm just using all of those things as different ways to express, again, what that feeling is. Sometimes that process can take, you know, 10 minutes or even sometimes longer to like an hour. Mm-hmm. Our process is immediate, you know, it's spontaneous. It's not something that I think about for a long time and, you know, go back to. And perhaps, you know, I'm thinking maybe I should be a little more thoughtful in the art making where I can think out a clear composition and then just really work from something that's there already. But I don't know, I keep being drawn to more of like the spontaneity of the creation, you know, of the creative aspect. And that's kind of the space that I really feel alive, being able to react immediately with how the ink is moving and the, you know, how the texture is playing out on the page. That's what I really get drawn to. It's interesting because I think, I don't know why, but I'm thinking so much of Christo and Jean-Claude as you're talking about that process and how different, it's like the complete opposite end of the spectrum where it's years and years of planning and intersecting with bureaucracy and, you know, all of these things, you know, and you're not planning, you're, you're about the spontaneous, you know, but at the same time, I think the fact that you work in such an analog way in a kind of contemplative space, it's both the spontaneous and the slow at the same time. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. So I've been doing this for about 20 years. Last year is actually when I felt like I had a good command 
of the tool and the line and how I'm able to create things, create a line that I actually imagine. So the tool isn't really dictating what the line is anymore. I have a better command of what I want. In the best sense, I feel like I'm creating in the now where I'm in communion with the spirit, you know? And what is the spirit revealing to me in that moment for myself or maybe for that person or even the world? To me, it's the most immediate way to hear, but it's also the most immediate way to be, you know, to be gratified and to be satisfied. It is the dance between, you know, the, the immediacy yet still using tools that's something that's very um, analog. I think that's why I keep gravitating more towards the mark making. I guess that fine line between the readability of something and I, am I able to express a word simply through simple mark. That's the area where I'm at right now. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to tune into the next episode in the Makers and Mystics Summer Series with our next guest host. And remember, keep creating. The world needs your art. Mm-hmm.